Now, there are lots of reasons that people do roots research. They research their family lineage. Um, the Mormons have a real curious angle on this. If you've ever done any genealogical research online, you'll run into um, Mormon research. They do tons of it. And the Mormons trace their family trees to find the names of ancestors who died without learning about what they call the restored Mormon gospel so that these relatives from past generations can be, though they be dead, they can be baptized by proxy in the Mormon temple. For Latter-day Saints, the Mormons, genealogy is a way to save more souls and strengthen the eternal family unit. This is a radical departure from historical and biblical Christianity. Okay? It's a departure, not in the sense of rest restoration, as the Mormons would say, it's a, it's a departure in the sense of error, okay? This is not how salvation comes to us, through baptism for the dead. So Mormons are doing genealogy for that kind of odd-shaped reason. Some of the rest of us are, are doing genealogy to find some kind of personal significance. Like maybe we're related to royalty. Wouldn't that be cool to find out that you had royalty in your past, a king or a queen? Um, that's... That's sort of what happened to a lady named Peggy Lene Bartels, um, secretary of the Ghanaian embassy in Washington, D.C., for 30 years. She's originally from a little city called Atwam, Ghana. About 7,000 people live there. And when the 90-year-old king of Atwam, Ghana died, the elders did what they've always done, a ritual to determine the next king. Okay, this is their ritual. They prayed. And they poured schnapps on the ground. I'm not making this up. They poured schnapps on the ground while they read the names of the king's 25 living relatives. And when steam rose from the schnapps on the ground, I thought the Mormons had some strange drink. When, when steam rose from the schnapps on the ground, the name that they were reading um, at that moment became king. And they were reading Peggy Lene's name. So when they called her to tell her that she was the new king of Atwam, Ghana, she explained to them that she was a lady. And so they said, well, king is the only post we have open, so you're our king. And she, she became king of Atwam, Ghana. She, when she returned to Ghana, she has a driver and a chef and an eight-bedroom palace, though it needs repairs, she said. She has power to resolve disputes, appoint elders, and manages more than a 1,000 acres of family-owned land. She says, I'm a big-time king, you know. When she returned for her coronation, they carried her through the streets on a litter, and she wore a heavy gold crown. Now, most of us, when we do our genealogies in search of royal roots, we come up empty at best. Okay, no kings, no queens. What we find is that we're probably related to somebody like Jack the Ripper or somebody like that, so... But don't let that bother you because there is a website called fakegenealogy.com. And if you go there, if you go to their website, you can't read it, but I'll read it to you. This is what it says. Do you have any famous relatives? Do you want some? <laughs> Here at Fake Genealogy, our crackpot team of investigators are bound to discover that you, your relatives, or your friends are related to some famous historical figure. And so they say, who might it be? Who would you like it to be? <laughs> okay. um, 
Think of the bragging rights when you tell your friends that you're a distant relative of Napoleon Bonaparte or, for instance, Sam Williams. Okay? Um, for just, it says, it says, did your grandfather cross the Delaware with Washington? For only a dollar and 37 cents, they say, we can say that George Washington was your great-great-grandfather. Right? They can make it happen. And if that doesn't satisfy you, they have a companion site called IShouldBeKing.com. And for another dollar and 37 cents, you can actually be declared king of your city or uh, family, at least. Today, we're going to probe genealogical matters that bear the stamp of God, the authenticity of God's own truth. They are the genealogy of Jesus the Christ, and they are full of stories, as Daniel said, stories of people whom God's embedded in this genealogy so that their stories can be told to you and so that they can point you to Christ. And that's our purpose today. So open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 1, the first couple of verses read like this. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and so on and so forth as Trent sang for us. A genealogy is a series of snapshots of stories unfolding throughout history by means of a carefully crafted list of names that lead us to a life. That life, in this case, is Jesus Christ. In Jesus' genealogy, there are names you would expect to be there. King David, Abraham, good kings like Hezekiah and Josiah. You would expect those names to be in the genealogies of the Christ. There are other names, though, in the genealogy that are puzzling to us, if you think about them, some of them downright shocking. For instance, down in verses 9 and 10, you meet a guy named Ahaz and another guy named Manasseh. Their stories are shocking and that they should be included in this genealogy of the Christ is a jaw dropper. For instance, Ahaz, according to 2 Kings 16, was 20, year old, 20 years old when he began to reign. He reigned 16 years, and he did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord his God, as his father David has done. This is one of the great understatements in the Bible. He walked in the way, it says, of the kings of Israel. He burned his son as an offering, according to the despicable practices of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the nation of Israel. He sacrificed, made offerings on the high places and the hills and under every green tree. He was an idolater as the king of Israel who offered his own son as a sacrifice to false gods. Manasseh's story is similar in 2 Kings 21. Manasseh was 12 years old when he began to reign. He reigned 55 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Hepzibah, and he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord according to the despicable practices of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. He rebuilt the high places that Hezekiah, his father, had destroyed. He erected altars for Baal and made an Asherah as Ahab, king of Israel, had done and worshipped all the hosts of heaven and served them. He burned his son as an offering. 
and used fortune-telling and omens and dealt with mediums and with necromancers who did much evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. And these guys are in the lineage of Jesus the Christ. Why are they there? You know, it's interesting. If you read the stories of the people in the genealogy, it's a rough group. It really is. Listen to this. Um, Abraham, of course, famously lied about his wife, Sarah, being his sister. Jacob was known as a deceiver. Judah slept with Tamar. David committed adultery with Bathsheba. Solomon worshipped foreign gods. Rehoboam oppressed the people. Abijah not, was not fully devoted to the Lord. Jehoram killed his brothers and forsook the Lord. Uzziah was prideful and afflicted, was afflicted with leprosy. Ahaz sacrificed his son in the fire. Hezekiah was prideful. Manasseh was an idolater who shed innocent blood. And Amon was an idolater. When you think about all those people are the people God used to bring Christ into the world. This is a stunning display of the sovereign mercy of God. He is ruling over all of these lives to bring good out of evil. It's similar to the language that we read in Genesis that Joseph puts it. He says, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. They're in there. Manasseh, Ahaz, all of these people. And they lead to Christ. God is using them to accomplish his good plan. This is the breadth of the scope of the sovereignty of God. This is the depth of the scope of the mercy of God. That the most wicked king who burned his own son in the fire before false gods as an act of pure evil would lead to the birth of God's son who would in love lay down his life as the greatest, most redemptive act of love in history. This is the sovereign mercy of God on display. The wicked don't ultimately triumph over good. God uses them to bring about a greater good, the greatest good. He's bringing Christ to the world, the Savior to the world. So these voices, these stories... They are telling you today, if you are facing evil, then know that God's mercy and, and sovereign power are great, greater. They are greater. Whatever you are facing in this story, we find an assurance of God's great sovereign mercy that cannot be derailed by the darkest so that's a first interesting cluster of people that you find when you read this genealogy. There's a second group you wouldn't expect to be there, and it's a group of women. Women were not normally in genealogies, especially women with these kinds of reputation. And right away you find them right out of the blocks in the first few verses. They are um, Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and the wife of Uriah. And of course then a fifth one would be Mary. You don't find women in many genealogies back in this day, as I understand it, but especially women with these kinds of reputation 
all of these women had swirling around them, if not substantiated by them, rumors of sexual immorality. Ruth and and even Mary, Jesus' mother, um, though women of remarkable virtue, find themselves in eyebrow-raising circumstances. Ruth was um, on that threshing floor, and then Mary, of course, was pregnant out of wedlock. Uriah's wife had an adulterous affair that led to the murder of her husband. Tamar played the part of a prostitute, though perhaps for somewhat noble motives. Rahab's sexual exploits became virtually inseparable from her identity, you know, like others whose renown attached itself to their very name. For instance, we have Alexander the Great, William the Conqueror, and Rahab the harlot, Rahab the prostitute, Rahab the whore. In the genealogy of Jesus, see, a sovereign God is carefully choosing whom he will use, and he chooses these four. He chooses a prostitute. Um, One of the commentators, Dale Bruner, says this. He says, the four model matriarchs of Jewish history were Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, and Leah, the wives respectively of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. These four women are conspicuous by their absence in this list. Okay, they were like the, the model women of the Old Testament. Their names are not here, he says. Their husbands are all here, so there was opportunity for Matthew to include these good wives But Matthew gives the church four new matriarchs, and all of them preach the gospel of the deep and wide mercy of God. These four scandals, in their way, preach the gospel of divine mercy, which is Matthew's whole mission to proclaim. Matthew will later teach us that Jesus came not for the righteous, but for sinners. But already in his genealogy, Matthew is teaching us that Jesus came not only for, but through sinners. God did not begin to stoop into our sordid human story at Christmas only. He was stooping all the way through the Old Testament. The mercy of God is the deepest fact Matthew finds in the Hebrew Scriptures and in Jesus. And so through the four women, he highlights this mercy in the first lines of his genealogy. Mercy to, mercy through these four women. The other thing that's interesting about these four women is not only their reputation is somewhat questionable, but they all are either are not Jewish or they are associated closely with people who were not Jewish. Think about that. Non-Jews in the lineage of the Messiah, the Jewish Messiah. This is a world shaker for, for Jews. It anticipates what Simeon would say when he took old Simeon, when he'd take Jesus in his arms, and he would declare that he is a light to the nations. Jesus himself would later say the gospel, the good news about him, was to be proclaimed to all people, all nations. Again, I like the way Bruner puts it. He says, This first genealogy in the New Testament has the surprising office of teaching us 
that the line that led from Abraham to Jesus, the Son of God, was intersected again and again by Gentile blood. King David himself had a Canaanite great-great-great-grandmother, a Jerichite great-great-grandmother, a Moabite great-grandmother, and a Hittite wife. Matthew wants the church to know that from the start, and not just from the Council of Jerusalem in Acts 15, God's work has been interracial, and God is no narrow nationalist or racist. In this genealogy, though, we get a sense that God's story of redemption and love is for all peoples. It's for us. And that He chooses whom He will use. And if you belong to Him, if you say, I am a follower of Jesus, then He has chosen you to be used by Him. We pick up that idea in Luke chapter 1 where it says, we, having been delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve God without fear in holiness and righteousness before Him all our days. We were rescued. We were given faith so that we might serve God. We might be useful in taking the story to others. So, <clears throat> these women, what are they saying to us? They are inclusive. They are inclusive of everyone in the story. This is a story of redemption for all peoples, regardless of gender, regardless of race. This is a story for the whole world to come to know God through. There's another collection of names, and these are interesting. They're exemplified down in verses 13 through 15. Zerubbabel, Abiud, Eliakim, Azor, Zadok, and the boys. We don't know anything about these people. This is the only place in the Bible where their names show up. Nine names we know absolutely nothing about. Who were they? They might have been kings, but they might well just as well have been carpenters or shopkeepers or shepherds. Likely, they're nobody important, just names in a list, but not just any list. They are names in a list that God used to bring Christ to the world. Now maybe one day, somebody's going to write down another list of names. Names of people that God used to bring Christ to the world in our day. Names of homemakers and bankers and programmers and nurses and students and artists and teachers and football players and cheerleaders and social workers and Salesmen and chefs and landscapers and by God's extreme grace, maybe even pastors, that God is using a list of nobodies that God is using to bring Christ to our world. People whose stories matter because God is using us to bring Christ to our world, to our neighbors maybe. To people that you work with, people that you live next to, people that you know on the soccer team. Or maybe it's to the nations. Maybe God is going to use you somehow to take the gospel to the nations. Like Britain and Tara, to a people that have never, ever heard before. This Christmas, let's inscribe our name on that list 
of people that God is using, nobodies that God is using to take Christ to the world. So this Christmas, open up your home and have somebody from outside the church for some of that wonderful Christmas stuff that you cook up every year. Some of those desserts, some of that coffee with the peppermint in it. Have them over. Hear their stories. Find out what they believe. Share with them what you believe about, the, about Christmas and about Christ. Open up your home. Listen to them and share your faith. Invite them to the Christmas Eve service. Invite them to one of our services the next few weeks as we unfold the teaching of who Christ this baby is at Christmas. We'll be walking right through the birth narratives up until Christmas. Bring them along. Let them hear the stories. Rob always tells us that most people will come to church if a friend will invite them. Let's inscribe our, na our name on the list of people, of nobodies, that God is using to bring Christ to our world. Well, it's, it's not just an interesting collection of people, but it's a real interesting arrangement of names that we have here. It starts out with um, Abraham, and it moves down all the way to King David, 14 generations. Starting with Abraham, Jesus is now, according to Matthew, a son of Abraham, the seed of Abraham, the offspring of Abraham. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And with Abraham, God covenanted to bless all the peoples on the earth. Remember back in the book of Genesis, God said to Abraham, I'll bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I'll curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Abraham, through your seed. Paul makes it clear in Galatians. He says the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. He doesn't say to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring, who is Christ. Christ is the one who fulfills the promise of Abraham that nations will be blessed. We, we pick this up in Revelation where it says, John says, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb who is Jesus. Clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and, and to the Lamb. So 14 generations later, Matthew tells us, we come from Abraham to King David. This is arguably the high point of the Old Testament when David is king. He's a man after God's own heart and every other king was measured by David. He was either a king who followed after the ways of David or not. David's the king that God would promise that someone from his family would reign on the throne forever. In 2 Samuel 7, it says, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, David, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom, and he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So we have 14 generations to David and the promise of a 
of a reign forever. But then we have 14 generations where there is no reign of, of a son of David on the throne. And they're taken into captivity. Everything declines. And then 600 years before, they're, they're taken in before Christ. They're taken into captivity. And then we have 14 generations where no one reigns. But hope is restored as Christ comes. And it says, all the generations from Abraham to David were 14. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. One commentator says it's like looking at a leaning letter N, a capital letter N. You go up from Abraham to David. And then you go down from David to the exile. And then you go back up from David to Christ. That letter N represents the story of the Old Testament as God readies the people for Christ. For Matthew, this represents God's great sovereign rule over all things. And now the son of David and the son of Abraham has been born at Christmas, and all the promises and hopes are being fulfilled in him. Matthew likes to say that about the prophecies. He says, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophets. He says that about specific prophecies, but it also applies to this genealogy that represents that the whole Old Testament, the story of the whole Old Testament was fulfilled in the birth of Jesus. It was all pointing to Jesus. The promises to Abraham, the promises to David, they are all fulfilled in Christ. He's the son of Abraham and of David. He's the descendant of good and wise kings and wicked kings, of women of purity and harlotry, of Jews and of Gentiles, and a line of nobodies whom God was at work to bring Christ into the world. This morning, the question that's really before us as we think about this genealogy is, Will I join that line of people who bear Christ to the world? Will I do that this Christmas? How does God want me to do that this Christmas? To share the good news of Christ with someone in your world. More importantly, is for you to believe that news. That Christ was intentionally brought into the world to rescue us from our sin by his birth, and his life, the good life he lived, the death he died on the cross, and his resurrection from the dead. He lived and died and rose again to bear our sins so we would not have to, so we could be restored to God. And this morning, through this assortment of stories and names, God is inviting you to believe that too. Let's pray together this morning. Father, this is a demonstration of your rule, that all things accomplish your purposes. You cannot be stopped. Your good plan will prevail. The hope of heaven is sure, just as sure as Christ came into the world, he will return for us. And so we are right to trust in you, to hope in you, and to share that hope. And so God, as we bow before you. I just want to ask now, God, that you would prompt us to think about who it is in our world that you might want us to speak to. Someone we know who doesn't believe yet, 
and he's never heard the story this way, without Santa and elves, but with Christ, the fulfillment of all history. Father, give us faith to say yes to that. Lord, some of us in this room, we've been in the church, we've been around the church, we pop in and out of the church, but we've never said yes to you. We've never said yes to you as our Savior, Jesus, and our Lord. We've never turned from our sin and trusted you. So, Lord, I pray right now that you grant grace to anyone in this room who might find themselves in that place, prompted by your Spirit to say yes to your offer of eternal life and to say to Christ through Jesus. Lord, we ask all these things.